generals does it take to swing Cameron's policy on Europe? Syria, they call it a ceasefire, but nobody's told IS. The day the Russians condemned Stalin is Putin next, and Eric Winkle-Brown has died, but not the great man's legend. You either enjoy it or you don't. So, this just made my adrenaline flow. I loved mm. it. Number 10 Downing Street has lobbied former military commanders to promote the idea of the European Union. The signatories to the letter are saying that the UK should remain in the EU for security reasons alone. One of the protocols of the original concept of the Treaty of Rome that created the EU. Well, James Hurst has been covering the story at Westminster. Hello, James. Hello, Kate. What a week it has been, because we have heard this debate on Europe for so many years now, the same themes keep coming up. So you might have expected when David Cameron got home from his negotiations in Brussels, made his victory speech outside number 10, you'd know what was coming. Well, here's some of my edited highlights. It's about how we cooperate to keep our people safe. I believe we'll be safer in a reformed Europe. Leaving Europe would threaten our economic and our national security. Britain will be safer stronger and better off in a reformed European Union. Safer came before stronger, security before trade in the Prime Minister's announcement. And there was not one mention in there of migration, red tape or mythical straight bananas. So, James, who's in and who's out? Well, obviously, uh, David Cameron there, very much in, alongside him, Michael Fallon, the Defence Secretary, Philip Hammond, the Foreign Secretary. In all, 23 who attend Cabinet are backing Remain, and six who attend Cabinet are saying leave. Below Cabinet level, there are two Defence Ministers backing leave, Julian Brazier and Penny Mordaunt. Defence Minister Philip Dunn, though, is in the Remain camp with the Defence Secretary. Mark Lancaster, also Defence Minister, still undeclared. But I think there may be a bit of a frosty atmosphere whipping through parts of Main Building. And I think voters may be forgiven as they try to make up their minds if they feel a little confused. Should they believe the Defence Secretary, Michael Fallon? We're certainly safer within it. Or the former Defence Secretary. Dr. Liam Fox. There are actually security risks attached to being in the European Union. Being inside the European Union enables uh, members to cooperate on counter-terrorism. It enables them to exchange criminal records, uh, passenger information on aircraft and so on. And I've never heard such nonsense. The idea that the French and the Germans would not share intelligence with, with the United Kingdom, which would put their own citizens at risk in order to punish Britain for leaving the European Union is completely laughable and childish. Now, among Conservative MPs, the division is almost half. There's a slightly higher number saying that they're backing Remain. Uh, Dr Julian Lewis, who chairs the Commons Defence Committee, though, is in the Leave camp. More unity on the opposition benches. We've got just seven MPs declared for Leave, along with three from the DUP. The vast majority on the opposition benches have declared for Remain. James, both Leave and Remain are claiming the security case is theirs. I guess it makes sense that Downing Street drafted in a string of retired service chiefs. Yes, it might have seemed to make sense, but it didn't seem to go so well. This open letter, it seems, was written at number 10. It was published in the Daily Telegraph yesterday. 
with the names of 13 retired top brass right at the top. Four former service chiefs in the list, four former chiefs of defence staff. Unfortunately for Downing Street, only 12 of those 13 had actually agreed to have their name put on it. General Sir Michael Rose, who had been asked but who had not said yes, only found out that it has been published with his name on it when he was contacted some hours later by a journalist. We've also had one who did sign, Field Marshal Lord Bramall, uh, telling the Telegraph he felt pressured by Number 10 and that it wasn't the kind of letter that he would have drafted. Uh, but one of those who did sign, and seemingly very willingly, General Lord Dannett, former Chief of the General Staff. I think we would be less safe if the, Europe if the United Kingdom left the European Union we run the risk of the cohesion of Europe fragmenting and ultimately we run the risk of NATO itself fragmenting, which is exactly what Mr Putin would like to see. Now, I thought there were a couple of notable names missing from the list. Lord Richards, the last chief of the defence staff, and General Sir Peter Wall, the last chief of the general staff. Uh, General Wall is actually working for the Remain campaign. We don't know what their views are. Colonel Richard Kemp, though, this week very vocal for the Leave campaign, tweeting those who signed the letter are wrong. This is what Rear Admiral Chris Parry told us this week. Right now, I'm trying to make up my mind whether we should stay in or out, but if you ask me to vote today, I think we should leave the European Union. I'm British. I'm not afraid to go into the unknown. I mean, what is absolutely clear, the Remain campaign have decided to play the security card as an early joker. They haven't really played it quite as effectively as they might have liked. What I've not been able to find out is if the egg that landed on Downing Street's face yesterday is marked as organic under EU regulations. <laughs> All right, James Hurst, thank you very much for that. Well, joining me today, as ever, is BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. What do you make of all that, James? Uh, Christopher? It's a load of nonsense, isn't <laughs> Identity it? crisis there. Uh, no, I'm all right. Um, it's a load of nonsense, isn't it? Um, let, let's go through it very simply. Um, the United Kingdom isn't threatening to pull out of NATO. It's the EU. And uh, every system within NATO remains with the United Kingdom, and the United Kingdom is one of the leading members of NATO, and there's no question about any security aspect of yeah. this at all, at all. But you've got I've, these people signing this letter. Um, they, a lot of them have been being pushed into signing letters. The whole <laughs> thing is complete and utter nonsense. Now, for, I'll give you one example and then see the whole thing in this context. Julian Lewis, who is the chairman of the Defence House of Commons He Defense wants out, Committee, doesn't he? He wants out. Now, I've known Julian Lewis for 100 years. He's always wanted out. 100 he did, years, <coughs> really? He didn't, he didn't <laughs> want in, in the first place. So let's not confuse, because people have uh, had sort of uh, defence military uh, positions or political defence positions, as Julian Lewis has, don't confuse that with, uh, let's say, a military assessment of why we should go or why, why we should leave. And it's as simple as that. A mm, uh, lot happening in defence and politics this week. Uh, looking ahead to the weekend, Trident's on the agenda. Trident's on the agenda probably, for the, uh, in theory, for the last time before it goes into the political side of this. What's happening is on Saturday morning, uh, late Saturday morning, in London, there is a C&D momentum organised uh, march, uh, sort of kill off Trident. Uh, the important thing is that Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the opposition, uh, Labour Party, will be speaking, not just attending. Mm. And what he says there 
is going to be a hope, as far as he is concerned, of actually converting the uh, some of his Labour backbenchers into when the vote eventually comes in, into voting no. And the other side of it, of course, is the Prime Minister regards that that, that vote as the second when most important... When is that important. vote going to be, then? That's the whole point. He regards it as the second most, especially this year, the second most important vote, uh, probably for the rest of his time as Prime Minister. So... If this gets very tight on the Labour backbenchers, it could be that the vote on Trident will be delayed perhaps for a year. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, the Aussie defence budget's on a roll, thanks to the Chinese. And Eric Winkle Brown, fly the legend. A partial ceasefire for Syria is scheduled to come into effect on Saturday. It's been brokered by the United States and Russia, but it excludes the so-called Islamic State and other UN-designated terrorist organisations. Meanwhile, the Syrian government says it will observe the ceasefire, but insists that it will continue to fight IS, al-Nusra and other groups linked to them. So how's it all going to work? Well, let's hear from Doris Carrion, a research associate from the Middle East and North Africa programme at Chatham House. Good to speak to you today, Doris. Um, in whose interests is it to have a ceasefire, apart from the people on the ground, obviously, who are suffering, the civilians? So there's a number of actors who have it in their interest to have a ceasefire, uh, primarily Russia, Iran and the Assad regime, as well as the US to a lesser extent. And this is because pro-Assad forces now have the momentum. They've been regaining territory across the north, west and south of the country. And so they're in a position of strength to be able to demand favorable terms if talks get off the ground following a successful ceasefire. Now, the US, on the other hand, no longer really sees any of the viable outcomes in Syria's war as in its interest. So what it's really trying to do is minimize the damage. It wants stability. It wants to prevent extremist groups from taking over the country. And so lately it's been qualifying its language about mm. when Assad has to step down, for example. Uh, now, we're hearing, of course, that U UN humanitarian aid is reaching people on the ground in Syria. Uh, but between now and that ceasefire coming into effect, what do you think is happening elsewhere? Well, the fighting is continuing elsewhere on the ground. It's continuing um, around Aleppo in particular. Uh, in the week since the first announcement of the ceasefire on the 11th of February up until um, the, the second announcement, the fighting has really been intensifying as people are trying to exact their positions on the ground before they would have to halt their fighting. Mm. Of course, uh, IS uh, and al-Nusra, will, will not the al-Qaeda affiliate, will, will not be observing this ceasefire. Is there any point in having one if they are not? There's definitely still a point in having one. Um, there's a lot of other actors that could, if they're engaged in the ceasefire, um, you know, it would make a real difference to people's lives on the ground. There's the Kurdish groups uh, and the, the Turkish forces who have also been escalating their fighting in recent days. But if they can be persuaded to, you know, to hold by the terms of the ceasefire starting on Saturday, then that will make a big difference to the fighting around Aleppo as well as in other areas. Christopher, your take on this? Um, a long-term ceasefire needs guarantees. And you get those guarantees by the conditions on the ground. And the conditions on the ground, therefore, have to be favourable in some part to all those people taking part. That's the tradition of ceasefires. This doesn't have too many things written on it which say that there are a lot of guarantees. And, in the, in, in, and it's important because the, the two greatest guarantors are the United States and also Russia. The second part of it is the fact that it doesn't include ISIS. 
ISIS doesn't have to go to any any negotiating table uh, or, or, or any ceasefire table. And so what happens if ISIS start to be rather successful, and they have been rather successful lately, in spite of what the Americans have been saying by sending one of their top spokesmen over to Europe to try and convince uh, largely European uh, media that uh, ISIS is losing out. There is no real examination there needed. ISIS is not losing out all the time. That is, it, it is terrorizing. And there we have the problem. You've got two wars. One is ISIS versus the rest. And you've got the other one, which is Assad versus the largely rebel groups and the American, Saudi Arabian, etc. supported groups. A ceasefire is, is very likely, very likely to hold for a bit, but who knows how long. I suspect days not weeks. Is that, is that how you see it, Doris Carey? And is it going to break down? And how do you stop that from happening? I, I would agree with Christopher. There's there's a lot of known unknowns that could really derail the ceasefire from starting or if it starts from holding. Uh, one of the most important known unknowns is um, exactly which additional groups, aside from ISIS, are designated to be terrorists. So everyone keeps referring to this UN Security Council list, but that list... Well, the definitions has, are all different depending on which side you're on, aren't, aren't they? Exactly. So there's a couple of US-backed groups that are considered terrorist groups by actors like Turkey. And then there's also other groups like Ahrar al-Sham and Jais al-Islam that fight very closely with US-backed groups and, um, and, and could still come under attack by Russian forces. Uh, you know, and we're hearing now that the, the Kurdish militants are attacking what America sees as its allies. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so unless the U.S. can find it, in it within its ability to really force them to stop fighting within the terms of this ceasefire, then everyone who, you know, up until now has uh, signed up to it in theory would have a valid pretext to keep on fighting. Do you know, I'm, um, one, of the, one of the two things that I've always witnessed in terms of ceasefires, one is that different parts of the organization sneak ground and also take an opportunity to rearm that's very important in terms of the, the, the rebels. The third part, the second part of it has also been able to get f food supplies and medical supplies into people that desperately need their supplies. Now we have, uh, the day before the ceasefire starts, an American uh, has put a load of aid in, especially foodstuffs in, already, already 21 tonnes of this stuff has gone missing. Mm. Uh, the Americans don't know where it is, but they sure know whereabouts it went in, uh, where it went missing, and hey-ho, where it went missing is controlled by the rebels. The rebels, so-called rebels, have in most recent times been holding back food supplies from civilians and that is not a good sign for a properly run ceasefire so that's the problem you can't run a ceasefire so D doris carrion um how can this ceasefire when it does come into effect assuming it does on saturday how can it be turned into a solution there's quite a lot that would have to happen. There would have to be a genuine commitment from all sides to halt attacks and to facilitate humanitarian access, as Christopher was just saying. Um, and you would really need the UN to be able to take a much stronger role, as it's been attempting to do in the past few weeks, to convince the warring parties to come back to the table and to attend peace talks in Geneva again. And then those sides would all have to come to Geneva with a real willingness to compromise on some of their, their core demands. Um, and then you would need the regional and international powers like the US and Russia and Saudi Arabia um, and Iran to decide to actually enforce whatever terms are agreed on by the different sides. So it's um, it's quite a big ask, but that's the only way that this ceasefire could ever turn into a lasting solution. And there's a big sign 
huge sign written over the doorway into the ceasefire uh, room. On one, on one side it says, what do we do about Assad? And the other side says, ISIS, uh, you're holding a ceasefire? <laughs> no, no. Dor Doris Carey, what, what do you see the future as being for President Assad? I think that that's really hard to predict. Um, you know, like I was saying earlier, the the U.S., which is one of the key actors here, no longer sees any of its and any of the valuable outcomes in Syria as in its interest. So it has been toning down its language about when Assad has to step down. People are now saying, oh, maybe after a six-month transitional period, or after elections, or something along those lines. So things are gradually moving in the direction of having him being involved in a transitional process. But anyone who has been watching Syria for the past 10, 15 years would tell you that someone like Bashar al-Assad would use this as an opportunity to really stay in power for as long as he possibly could and would not agree to step down at the end of the process. So I, I you know, I, I wouldn't be too optimistic about seeing him go anytime in the near future. All right, Doris Carrion from Chatham House, thank you very much for your time today. A UN report out today says killings and torture are being committed with impunity by all sides in Libya. It says human rights violations carried out by armed groups battling for control of the country could amount to war crimes. Uh, Christopher, from Libya to the Bosphorus, the, almost no good news out no, there, is there, in that there area? Let's take, uh, the, the Americans have started bombing in Libya. Um, they're saying they're not doing it, but they are. <clears throat> and what they're doing is bombing in uh, as close air support for their own uh, special forces, which they've got in there. And the United Kingdom could be heading that way in, 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 very, very soon. The you latest, think so? like, really? Oh, yeah. yeah, I do. Yeah, I do because there's an <laughs> obligation between the United States, the United Kingdom, and France, and these are the, pe the three people outside. And the greater plan now is to is to split uh, Libya, or would be to split Libya into three groups, into it, three is provinces. Is that very likely? Because the, the, the formation of this unity government is not really succeeding. It's not looking very hopeful, is it? No, you, it, you've got the you've got an international recognition for it, but the truth is um, nobody really wants well, it on the ground. Well, let's wait until Monday because on Monday there. There is a, a meeting of the council, and that council, I think, it's going to it's, it's it's going to be a meeting in Tobruk, and there, this idea of three provinces will will will, will come to something. But you know, you're quite right about from here to the Bosphorus, for example. If you look in Egypt, we've got Sisi, the president of Egypt, is now saying, "Don't leave what you hear about anything else." And if I tell you to do something, you better do it. In in Yemen, <clears throat> they're saying in Yemen now that up in Lebanon, Hezbollah. Are actually training the uh, uh, training the Houthi uh, rebels to fight the so that so we've now got the very real prospect of Saudi Arabians bombing in Lebanon, which is unheard of. Um, you've got ISIS um, saying that we are actually sort of coming back in very strong in. In, in Iraq, and the Americans having to send over a full colonel in uniform and medals and saying, no, 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 this is not true. We've got uh, we've got ISIS under control. Um, and then we've got the ceasefire, which is supposed to start tomorrow. And as we first uh, thing we heard, the two most important people not involved in at all. One's, one is the president, Assad, uh, uh, mm. president Assad and the other is ISIS. So, what chance peace in the Middle East? So that's uh, midnight tomorrow. Um, let's uh, move a little closer to home. Irish elections on Friday. Irish elections on Friday, which, <clears throat> if it's got anything to sort of commend it to the people that have watched Northern Ireland uh, elections, you know, beyond the sort of the, you know, the idea that you, you vote early and you vote often, um, it, it is going to be what happens to Sinn Féin as a party in, 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 in the Dublin Parliament. And it's very likely that Sinn Féin will, Sinn Féin will lose out considerably. And here is the, there's an irony here. 
because it's happening on Monday. There will be other elections, but the big event in Ireland this year is in at Easter because that was the beginning of the uprising, 1916 mm. uprising. So that's the thing to aim Let's for. Let's just talk about this uh, announcement by Australia. It's going to boost its defence spending over the next 10 years, double the size of its submarine fleet, as well as buy 24 more frigates, destroyers and patro- or patrol boats. Um, like, yeah, 30, if you think, think it's 30 billion Australian dollars, which is, I suppose, around about sort of 16 billion uh, sterling. Um, sign of the times, then, is it? Well, I tell you what it is. It is very much a sign of the uncertainty... <clears throat> In the South China of what's Sea. happening in the South China Sea with China pushing more and more to establish not just a presence, in, in, but a, quite, a, quite a provocative presence, saying that these are our islands, you mustn't go there, we are building military installations on those islands. And when you look around and say, well, who can actually sort of get involved in this, even if it's in the monitoring, the Americans have got a big impo- uh, another fleet be going, in, going in three weeks' time into the South China Sea, but it is a regional conflict, mm. and that is the difference. We'll even have the New Zealand Navy going into this as well. But for the Australians, you know, it's doubling, doubling their defence budget and there are no oppositions to it. Now, let's turn the clocks back because on this day, 60 years ago, an event occurred that was totally unexpected and one that changed completely how Western governments viewed their most dangerous enemy, the Soviet Union. On that day, the Russian leader Nikita Khrushchev denounced Stalin and Stalinism. Dr Martin McCauley is a Soviet and Russian historian from University College London. Good to speak to you today. Why is this so important? Uh, It's very important because it it actually transformed communism. It turned it upside down. And uh, here was uh, um, Khrushchev uh, accusing Stalin of being a mass murderer. And he'd been in charge of the Communist Party and he'd been treated as a god before then. Uh, No wonder one poor delegate, she fainted when she heard that. It's a brave move, wasn't it? So astonishing. Uh, and the question is, why did he do it? Uh, uh, one of the reasons is he wanted to break the spells of, of, of Stalinism. Uh, it's his perestroika, if you like. He wanted to regenerate uh, and uh, tell the Soviet people, you can now innovate, you can think and so on, and you can develop the economy because nobody would uh, take any decision under Stalin because if he did uh, and it went wrong, well, you were for the gulag. So therefore, he wanted a completely different uh, uh, view from the Soviet people, release that tremendous creative tension he believed in the working class. The person who really was put out by it was Mao Zedong because he thought he should have been consulted beforehand hmm. and the Chinese party delegation were excluded from the secret speech, uh, which they found very insulting. And therefore, uh, you find uh, a very uh, tense relations between Mao and Khrushchev right up to the, the uh, uh, removal of Khrushchev in 1964. Mm. And he was denouncing the cult of the Kremlin personality, yes. wasn't he? Yes, the cult of the personality was basically you treat Stalin as a god, uh, everything he says is right, you cannot challenge it and so on. Uh, and... Uh, uh, in many ways, uh, uh, Stalin was a psychopath, but so was Hitler and so was Mao Zedong. Mm. So that's quite extraordinary. If you're comparing it to today's times, uh, do you think there might be some kind of similar move against President Putin? If, if Putin is overthrown in a coup, he will be destroyed. You'll have exactly the same type of language. That's the way Russian politics works. You destroy a person who's been defeated politically. If he goes uh, under his own terms, they will basically say he's a fine leader and he will carry on. But the classic example of this, isn't it? The person is destroyed, loses politically, and then is destroyed. Of course, it's Khrushchev himself, because this was what fifty-six he made this denunciation, and six years later he was destroyed. 
but by President Kennedy because that was the Cuban Missile Crisis and then he went in a couple of years after that. Yes, he was. Uh, Khrushchev was a tremendous risk-taker uh, and uh, he was intelligent, but when he got hold of an idea, he didn't discuss it with the Presidium. He, he acted like a tank. He <laughs> just drove it through all opposition and so on. Yeah, and therefore potentially very dangerous. I bet they're not uh, observing this anniversary in North Korea at the moment. They wouldn't want any <laughs> ideas put around, would they? No, they, they is that not... ever going to happen, do you think, something similar in North Korea? Is it possible? That, that, that is all possible because it's a military dictatorship. And uh, Kim Jong-un is there and he's been killing, from South Korean sources, he's been killing some of his closest associates and some of the top military. OK, just imagine it were to happen, that someone were to make that kind of speech in North Korea, what would happen? Well, first and foremost, I don't think would, they would make that sort of speech. I think what Different would, language, I guess. Uh, different <laughs> Starters. language. Starters. <laughs> uh, what, what would happen, I guess what would happen, there'll be rumours that there are top people who are willing to do that. Mm. Mm. Um, he would then, as he's done, retaliate against that. But if those top people stood still and stood firm, then I think that is, a lot of people say, that is the only way that you'll break this dynasty in North Korea. If you look at uh, Xi Jinping in China, he's the strongest Chinese leader since Mao, and he's developing a tremendous personality cult. Ah. Uh, so therefore, uh, <coughs> all the party officials now have to study his speeches, uh, and he says that it must be China-centric, Sino-centric, keep out foreign influence. We don't want foreign culture. We don't want foreign influence. We want foreign technology. But we are Chinese and we look inwards and so on. And he's coming down very hard on constitutional lawyers, those who are liberals, those who are religious and so on. Because he How do you think that kind of thing plays into the, the whole global stability picture? Uh, he's taking a risk. Xi Jinping is taking a risk because there must be a tremendous opposition to him because there's basically three interest groups in China and he, he's chipping away at the other two, making himself really... The most important date is 2017 when the next party Congress is and uh, then the Politburo Standing Committee All right. will be replaced. OK, we'll come back then, if not before, Dr Martin <laughs> McCauley from the University College of London. Thank you very much for your time today. Tributes were paid this week to Captain Eric Winkle Brown, described as the UK's greatest ever test pilot. His death, aged 97, was announced on Sunday. He flew almost 500 different types of aircraft, more than anyone else in history. I met him at home a year ago, one of his last broadcast interviews. It's a bit like playing Russian roulette. Um, there are so many variables involved. There's wind speed, whether the sea's rough, the carrier's moving, um, all sorts of things like that. And he can't ask the carrier for help because he'll give away the position of the ship. He's got to come back, find the carrier and land on. It's a tough assignment. How did you manage to get it right? Were you lucky well, or...? you either enjoy it or you don't. So. This just made my adrenaline flow. I loved mm. it. Um, you also have uh, um, another first, the first jet landing yes. on an aircraft carrier. Did that make your blood kind of raise, rise well, a bit? <laughs> a bit, yes, and the weather wasn't very good there either. It was, you'll see, it's a bit rough, and the back of the vessel, rear end, was moving up and down a bit. Your success in, in landing on aircraft carriers stimulated a lot of interest, notably among the Americans who tried to beat you. After my world record piled up, 
they felt they would like to take that on. So the very good naval pilot who was told to dedicate himself to beating this record. To his everlasting credit, he did 1,600 landings and then had a nervous breakdown. Well, you can probably see why. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I think to be asked to do that specifically Mm. would have built up the pressure. I didn't have that pressure. They just happened as I went along. Captain Eric Winkle-Brown, whose death was announced at the weekend. Uh, Christopher, I mean, he he was one of a kind, wasn't he? He was not only one in a kind, but I'm not sure that you can actually get another kind like that now. I mean, it's not just because he was a great guy. Clearly he was. But it was a, it was a transition in the whole of military warfare, um, the, especially the aircraft, aircraft itself. He was flying before the fleet arm was invented. He was flying before the Royal Air Force was invented. He was the first guy to put a, a, a jet down on, mm. a, uh, on, a, on, a, on a flat top. Um, that doesn't happen now. We do a lot of the stuff that he had to do. We can now do it on our iPhones. Yeah, I'm and a- that great experiment and there's less risk. He was a supreme risk taker. Taker that because of his professionalism, he reduced risks down to a minimum. He must have saved countless lives as well. I think he probably did. And also the other thing he did, he gave great example. Um, in wartime, you get a great example. But this is a guy who just flew in peacetime. The other thing mm. he invented was a little slogan that I used to have on the back of my car. It said, fly Navy. Hmm. He was wrong, but it was fly Navy. <laughs> Why was he wrong? Uh, because I'm a surface ship. <laughs> <laughs> well, I get frightened in submarines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's all we have time for today, just as well. Don't forget, you can download the podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Thanks for listening. We'll be back the same time next week. Bye-bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. Yeah, tonight. How did Jim-